Welcome to this Diff podcast, part of the world's largest online festival of ideas, hosted at thinkdiff.co. Okay, so commons is um, usually defined, it's the definition I use, uh, which comes from uh, uh, Eleanor Ostrom and some other people, which is it's a shared resource which is maintained by a community or a group of stakeholders using their own norms and, and regulations. So it, it's both an object, a thing, which can be an immaterial thing, can be knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's an activity which we call commoning, you know, the maintenance of that object or the creation of that object. But it's also a specific form of governance and property, which is not based on the state and not based on private property. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of something in between and it represents in some way an alternative. And it really has to do with pooling and mutualization of resources. So uh -huh. there is a profound historical reason that it's coming back, which is that if you look at history and the you know, regular um, collapse of civilizations, and you have to know this is not exceptional, but actually uh, very regular, otherwise they would still be here. Um, so when civilizations um, collapse because they have overused their uh, own resources, uh, usually what you see is a, uh, a return of the commons. And you see that, for example, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the Roman Empire, you see the Christian monasteries, you know, they have a unified knowledge field throughout Europe. They, they share technical and scientific knowledge because the monks were basically mm -hmm. also the intellectual class of the period. Uh, they mutualize their living arrangements and they relocalize their economy uh, you know, around the domains, the feudal domains. And you can see that in China in the 15th century, in Japan in the 12th century, and you can see it today. So this combination of a return of the open source movement, which is about mutualizing mm -hmm. knowledge, design, software, the what we call the sharing economy. And of course, we have to be careful about how we use these words, but basically the idea of you know uh, mutualizing access to idle resources um, and this can be done in good and bad ways but okay this is also coming back today mm -hmm. uh, but also things like co-working maker spaces fab labs you, so you see there's a, a huge return of a more collaborative paradigm yeah uh, for the last let's say 20 years so yeah, does it have to be Sorry, Michelle. Does it have to be? Because you talked about a lot of the time, these 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 sort of ideas gain a lot of traction in periods of stress or you know, when there has been a collapse, as you say, in different forms of civilization. Is that what we're seeing in now? In a, in in a way that it is partly a response, or is it just an opportunity, really, to 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 rethink the notion of commons and 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 see well, the value in it now? How far is it? opportunity well, or reaction well um, I mean if you look at uh, you know the re the more recent history the you know under what, what I would call the capitalist system the commons are usually destroyed so if you look at the French Revolution you know it says there's public and there's private property and it's in the civil code it doesn't recognize the commons you look at the mm -hmm. English history is the history of enclosures right the the common lands of the farmers of the peasants in England and Scotland were enclosed and privatized. So mm. the notion of the commons was kind of, you know, very much disappeared 
in in a specifically Western con context, except two two exceptions. One is what I would call the social commons. So the, these farmers who were expelled from their land, you know, found themselves in cities. They mm -hmm. died at 35 years old in the mid mid 19th century, and they started building mutualities, unions, you know, all kinds of solidarity mechanisms. So they were mutualizing, pooling life risk. But this was then taken over by the state in the welfare state model. So that was also kind of decommonified. But originally, these were like social commons, you know, run by the workers themselves. Then this, the second wave was the digital commons, right? Because of the internet, people started working massively together, creating the Wikipedia and creating, you know, a million sites where people share information, but also even social media, you know, where people talk together constantly. And I think this brought back the commons in consciousness uh, because it kind of like had disappeared as a category. Um, and then you have the crisis of 2008, I would call this a third phase, where people mm -hmm. said, well, okay, if we can do this online, why don't we use these same mechanisms to make our life easier, especially if we are materially under stress? So we have this huge wave of urban commons. And this has been documented um, in Catalonia. There's a book called Aftermath with Manuel Castells and some other people, which really shows, you know, a huge, huge growth in Catalonia. There's a little study called Homo Cooperans, uh, you know, cooperating human by Tina de Moore. And she did this for, the, for Holland. She saw an exponential rise as of 2005. Mm -hmm. um, and then I know of a, a Flemish study from a green think tank called Oikos, which uh, shows the same in the Flanders. And I did a study in Ghent to confirm this. So I, I you know, I kind of can confirm this from my own experience. We had 50 urban commons in Ghent in 2006, mm -hmm. and we had 500 in 2016. So we did a timeline. You know, we can see that this is yeah, really you... happening. So p energy co-ops, you know, food arrangements. Uh, you know, like uh, community-supported agriculture, uh, housing co-ops, community land trusts, all these things are coming back. Yeah, and do you think it's, well, it's, it's, it's very exciting. Do you think there, there's, a, there's a cultural background here too because you've spoken about cities like Barcelona, which has a, a, a strong tradition from the 1930s and before of, if you like, collective self-organization, and uh, you, I know, have worked in states like Ecuador, where there's been there have been changes which have allowed a look at uh, the commons and and working in a different way economically. Do you think there's a strong cultural thing? Because yes, I, I think so. And it's hard to know how exactly that works, but clearly, mm -hmm. you know, even with the fascist repression on the Franco, what mm -hmm. you see happening is that uh, all that spirit of the 1930s. Is actually, you know, some maybe, you know, it's a generational transmission or something, but it's definitely very different in Barcelona from, say, in the Netherlands or Belgium. So, you know, people go for their own kind of historical traditions. Mm -hmm. And so you see that it's happening everywhere, but it's going to be colored very mm -hmm. specifically uh, and, and, and to a large degree in connection with historical traditions. All right. So you've you've got the commons then as as, as an area which is being uh, reimagined, re-explored, recreated, and particularly of course with the the impact of digital. Right. Now that I think I'd like to ask you about that. Is that in a way something well you you're clearly 
um, understand this very clearly, uh, the, the, the role of digital, but is it part of what writers like Paul Mason and Jeremy Rifkin are talking about, is that digital allows social production yes I, I do, uh, so yes yes so you you could say there's kind of uh, a number of ways to coordinate production you know and one is a hierarchy so you have a big corporation or the state and you have a bureaucracy and you know the they give commands and people follow the commands and that's how they know what to do uh, you have the market which is you know pricing so you you do what's economically viable and competitive but there's also a third one which is mutual coordination right mm-hmm. And this is where the digital comes in, because what it does, it cheapens the cost of collaborating at a massive scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you have is basically open, contributory, permissionless systems, right? Mm-hmm. So anybody in the world can contribute to the Wikipedia because it's an open, transparent system. And you know, let's say you know something about Theravada Buddhism, you know, I live in Thailand, so it's just kind of that okay. uh, kind of example. Uh, you go to the site and you see, well, there's something that's wrong or something that's missing. And so this is a signal that you can also contribute and correct the article, right? Mm. So this is now kind of a massive practice in terms of producing software, so the whole open source software movement, but also a lot uh, around design. So, you know, think about Arduino, the uh, computer board, the motherboard, and the, dr- and the civil drones, and all of these things are actually happening, you know, in these open environments where people see what other people are doing, they can improve, they can use it. Um, there's even, you know, a lot of people think that China, to a large degree, owns its success to using, uh, you know, what's happening in Shenzhen, uh, mm-hmm. which is basically all these little companies working together. First, they reverse engineer, but then they kind of, you know, uh, rapidly spread this knowledge in the whole network. And this allows for very fast innovation. While the yeah. patenting system, intellectual property, is an enormous, uh, you know, break on innovation. You, when you look at these uh, innovation statistics, you know, like, and it's, it's true for coal and for steam, you see very rapid innovation, uh, then it's patented. You see kind of a flat uh, innovation uh, period for 20 years, and it's only after the deep patenting that innovation kind of you know goes exponential again. You could see that with 3D, 3D printing, for example. You know, the only reason we talk a lot about the 3D printing is because 10, 10 years ago it was de-patented, and so suddenly went open ah, yeah. source, yeah. and suddenly engineers in the whole world you know, can improve 3D yeah. printing instead of just one company. So, so in a way, you're you're suggesting that the IP sort of industry and the patent industry, and I think I, I've looked at this data as well. It pretty much slows down innovation, it and does. it's another part of the sort of capture of exactly, surplus. Exactly, like. exactly. It kind of it's not meant to stimulate innovation, but to reward you know, the early innovators so that they can actually keep others from innovating. Um, and there, there's a book, and I, I, I'm sorry I can't give you the title of the author, but it's a very mm-hmm. important book comparing Germany and England in the 19th century. Uh-huh. And, you know, England was way, way ahead compared to Germany until the moment mm-hmm. that uh, the UK introduced uh, uh, very rigid IP legislation. Yeah. And the book production went down to 2,000 a year, and Germany was 20,000 a year. 
And so okay. just in 15 years, Germany overtook uh, the UK. And, and according to this historian, it's really, uh, lo- you know, it's it can be correlated very much to this IP uh, impediment. You also bring up this idea, not only of the commons, but of a move away from the old um, liberal labor, if you call it, you know, um, capital versus labor, state versus markets type discussion, which has been, yes. if you like, very stale for a long time. And you talk about a partner state. Now, what's what's different about a partner state? Okay, so so let's go first to the the first thing, which is you know the lib lab contradiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so we live in a world in which you sell your labor as a commodity, mm-hmm. you get a wage, and then the owners of the of capital you know create a surplus, and that that allows them to work. Um, what I'm arguing is that we're moving away from this system to a contributory system. So it's mm-hmm. not based on labor and capital, but on contributions and commons. So mm-hmm. take Linux or Arduino. Um, what you see is it's an open system where anybody can permissionally contribute, whether they paid or not. This is very important. Mm-hmm. Like in Linux, 75% are paid, 25% are not paid. Okay. So this is the open source economy. Uh, any developer who believes he can do something has the right to do it. And then mm-hmm. you have maintainers, uh, which is a, you know the kind of the controllers of the integrity of the system, which mm-hmm. say yes or no. But nobody tells you what to do, and nobody mm-hmm. can say you can't do this, right? So this is now, for example, also true in the blockchain economy. I recently heard that uh, you know even Ethereum has seven thousand developers working uh, on this uh, ecosystem. So these yeah. are no longer an economy which is based on corporations hiring people, but they're mm-hmm. kind of open systems. And so, you know, I, I live in sorry, I live in Chiang Mai uh, in the north of Thailand, which is actually one of the hotbeds of this new economy. Uh, we have four crypto meetings uh, a week, which is, I think is quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people living from this uh, new token economy. So I, I want to explain this, how, how this works. So you have like a common infrastructure and people will say, well, I want to build this. So they make a white paper. Uh, they create tokens. Uh, you know, they can create their own form of currency and then people will buy it either to have access to the resource in the future or as a kind of micro share, right? Mm-hmm. This is very different from a startup you know, begging for money uh, to venture capital and then mm-hmm. having to give ownership in return for the investment. Mm-hmm. This is a system where all workers, all developers, you know, actually have a stake. Um, and so it's, and it's really ecosystem. So they have miners, they have developers, they have users, and mm-hmm. none of them is really able to dominate the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's an open source economy. Uh, blockchain is open source. Um, so I hope to give you an idea that these economies are not really functioning the way we used to think about, you know, yeah. an economy of companies hiring people. Yeah, in that, in that, before you just, before you go on a little bit uh, on that, is this at the heart of what your your work is in a way is to try and find 
an economy which is able to circulate value rather than extract it in, on behalf yes, of yes 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 that's you know, exactly right clothes. yes yeah. so we what we want to do is to switch from a, an economic model which kind of only creates value through extraction so you either mm -hmm. need people or natural resources and it's through the extractive activity that you create market value right yeah um, but doing this uh, we create social inequality which is becoming mm -hmm. uh, unsustainable you know and, and our actually our democracy is in danger right now because mm -hmm. a large group of people in the west is uh, left on the wayside mm -hmm. and second of course climate change and all the things that you know that's mm -hmm. why uh, the your foundation exists so let's imagine a mode of production in which all these externalities that we don't recognize would actually be mm -hmm. part of the system and that we can actually fund directly and create value through generative activity. So if mm -hmm. I, uh, so I want to give you an example and, you know, I'll come back to the partner state because, but mm -hmm. okay, just let me explain this. Um, so this is a French community land trust movement. It's called Terre des Liens, um, you know, Earth of Connections. They buy land from the private market and they put it in a trust so that it's from then on free from speculation. Because they can then stabilize the, the price of the land, they can give cheap rent to mm -hmm. organic farmers. Now, they can prove that the more organic farmers you have in a region, a county, a département in France, mm -hmm. the less depollution costs you will have as a government. Because the, oh, the, the water agency, you know, organic farmers don't use pesticide, don't use toxic material. Mm -hmm. So you get the rainwater, it, you know, it uh, goes on the land and it comes back as pretty good water any, uh, anyway. Um, so no nitrates and all of that stuff, right? T today, there is no mechanism to fund that. Even if the government can say, well, oh, you know, we save 20 million euro a year. Mm -hmm. There is no mechanism to actually fund these positive externalities. So that's kind of a key issue that I want to tackle, right? So imagine open and shared supply chains, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of having comp companies purely competing with each other, keeping all their data private, and imagine how could you even get a circle economy? How many years would it take mm -hmm. if corporations don't share their data unless they're really convinced through long negotiation that it's a good idea for them. You know, we don't have the time. If you use the open source method and you say, okay, we all together, we all together in this, we have an ecosystem. We all kind of partners in this, you know, ecosystemic collaboration. So we will share our logistics, our logistical data, including material flows so that any, any entity in this ecosystem can say, oh, I can use this, right? It's feasible. Mm -hmm. So uh, using the blockchain and distributed ledgers, so it's basically kind of a universally shared accounting system. Yeah. Uh, you would have this kind of massive mutual coordination uh, that is becomes uh, um, visible. Yeah. And what you could do then is enter into those logistical supply chains, uh, biocapacity accountability. Oh, I see. So, yeah, how, that is interesting indeed. Yeah, how would a player in this ecosystem know, and this is called context-based sustainability, how, how would they know how much cobalt and copper they can use without destroying the planet, right? So there's mm -hmm. a number of solutions. We have 
something like the common good economy, which uh, is an interesting approach. They have a common good balance with 17 indicators. We have mm -hmm. something like Muziazem, which is uh, based in Barcelona, and they are very, very, a they're able to do very detailed metabolic um, um, flows, stud studies of flows. Uh, there's an initiative called Reporting 3.0, which talks about global thresholds and allocations. So, you know, how much cobalt is there in the world? What is the rate of biocircularity? Yeah. Um, you know, what is a fair access uh, for the different regions of the world to that resource? And then you would go down to the granular level at city, corporate, you know, co-op level, so that people could actually see in their context what is what is it they can use, right? These, these are very exciting uh, possibilities. Do you, do you ever find that people have become a little bit wary of some uses of blockchain of because course. they got sort of stolen yes. in the Bitcoin thing? So how do you keep people's spirit up around the shared uh, distributed ledger right. type notion without people getting, oh, well, Bitcoin is a bit of a... Yes, so the, you, you, we have to do the same as, you know, the way we think about platforms, right? So if you mm. look at Uber and Airbnb, because of their extractive mechanisms, they create a lot of social ills, like Airbnb mm. is a huge agent of gentrification. Mm. Uh, Uber, you know, destroys welfare systems for workers. Mm. They're under the minimum wage. They work on average mm. for nine months before quitting because they don't make enough money. And because they all compete with each other, they actually drive more than before. So people always have to go around the cities to you know, be sure they get, get a ride. Yeah. But so what we do is we say, well, actually, you know, idle sourcing in itself is good, right? The ability mm. to see resources that are not being used mm. in itself is a good thing. It's just that because of their extractive uh, uh, philosophy, they undermine the positive aspects of it. Yeah. So what we want to do with that is then say, well, let's have platform co-ops. Let's have the mm. different stakeholders, the drivers, the users, the city, create a you know muni ride alternative to Uber that is collectively managed by the stakeholder groups. And so all the surplus mm. doesn't go to uh, faraway shareholders, but goes back into e in the ecosystem. So it's like this circularity notion again about yes. circulating income. Yes, and so the, and let's do the same with the blockchain. So let's look at the yeah. advantage of the blockchain. Uh, let's realize that because of the you know predatory aspects of many people in the current blockchain space, that it's not going in the right direction, but we can do it differently. We can use the same technology, tweak it, transform it, so that it becomes ecologically and socially regenerative. I wonder if... I don't know if it's a halfway stage or or ways of moving towards these much more sophisticated pieces of work. What what do you think about the opportunities for either it's variously called a basic dividend or a basic income to provide a foundation for people to be more creative to generate and and participate in their own commons or to, if you like, almost find the time now to be learning about how yes, to self-govern. Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm personally in favor of the basic income. I, I think for people, even you know, people like me, you know, I had a very hard time in the beginning finding a business mm -hmm. model for my work. And um, there's an interesting idea from Guy, uh, Guy or Guy Standing, yeah. the, uh, you know, the UK professor who talks about yeah. the precariat. 
and yeah. he calls it the Commons Fund, which is also actually taken uh, by uh, what's his name, Yanis Varoufakis, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. in DM Twenty Five, where he also takes takes up that idea. And the idea is to take up rent for the you know that there is rent taking, for example, yeah. land value tax, right? If yeah. you I have, I think if you could just just help us, Michelle, with many people don't know what an economic rent is. Okay, so, uh, the, uh, so I'm going to give an example. Yes, so you, yeah. you buy a piece of land and then the government decide to build a subway next to your land, right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly your land goes from $100 per square meter to 10000 But mm -hmm. you haven't really done anything yourself. You are profiting. Mm -hmm. You're taking a rent that, that comes from actually the public sphere. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be justified to have higher taxes on those kinds of activities. So if you do labor, you do your own work, you shouldn't be taxed very highly because you're creating value. But yeah. if you're really merely puncturing the value created by others, yeah, you know that's rent because it's not you. It, you haven't created the value, right? So this can be taxed much more highly, and this is actually happening mm -hmm. in Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan. Mm -hmm. You know, which are pretty good solid economies because the land yeah. actually belongs to the state. Yeah, and I they, believe that's so. I mean, in Singapore, ninety percent of yes, the land exactly, is owned by exactly, exactly, and so they basically fund the state by taxing mm -hmm. the land, and you mm -hmm. know they lease it to private proprietors. But then, uh, these kind of rents that they obtain, they, they are taxed quite substantially. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, so we, we need to think in that way and then create uh, what, you know, uh, like a sovereign wealth fund, but as a commons. And that mm -hmm. way we could gradually fund uh, basic income. And this would allow yeah. people, you know, to take more risk and to engage in transition activities. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. you could have those tokens. And uh, I think a city could say, you know, 15 percent of our budget will mm -hmm. tokenize it for people. Who are doing the things that need to be done right mm -hmm. we need ecological transition we need social transitions there's state and market failure so let's be a partner mm -hmm. city or a partner state which means mm -hmm. we are facilitating solutions we are framing the solutions but we don't have to necessarily have a command and control mm -hmm. um, uh, paradigm and so it's inspired by the open source community because if you look at an open source mm -hmm. economy, it has three players. It has the, the community, mm -hmm. the contributive community, which manages its own affairs and you know the the ethos of open source and, and maintainers and how that works. And then you have the market forces, the ones who improve Linux and sell it on the marketplace and create mm -hmm. income. But there's always a third player, which is usually foundations, the Linux Foundation, mm. uh, the Drupal Foundation, etc., etc. And this is the model for the partner state, because what they do is they enable and empower the infrastructure infrastructure of cooperation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I so, like that phrase. Yeah, I like that phrase. That's so good. they are facilitate. They are for benefit associations. And I think this is a good metaphor and analogy for how the state could be in the future. Um, and, you know, in my world, we talk about public commons partnerships instead of public private mm -hmm. partnerships, or mm -hmm. we talk about public social partnerships. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in the study I did in Ghent, you could see that this is actually already happening. It's happening informally. 
the city doesn't know it's actually doing it. It doesn't give a name on it, mm-hmm. but it's it's intervening in multiple ways in supporting all these you know uh, open source and urban commons activity. Mm-hmm. So we just need to think about it more consciously and create processes that allow this to be more, uh, you know, a generic uh, factor of our lives. And this yeah. this started in Italy with the you know Bologna regulation for the care and regeneration of the urban commons, which mm-hmm. is a regulation that allows cities to say, "I want to care for this resource." Then they create an accord, a commons accord between the citizen group and the city. Um, then they create a what they call it a five um, um, quintuple helix um, governance uh, institution uh, in which the, that sounds complicated. It is complicated, but it's basically the city, the chamber mm-hmm. of commerce, the mm-hmm. research institutions, and organized civil society that organize themselves to sustain autonomous civic innovation, which is number mm-hmm. five, right? So you have these, uh, because um, what what Ostrom showed, you know, she was the Nobel Prize winning uh, economist that yes. studied uh, the commons. commons. Mm-hmm. She said the the characteristic of the commons is poly governance. Mm-hmm. It's multi-stakeholder governance. Uh, I suppose the next question to ask is, what would you see as being the most important uh, either events or, or changes that would would start us on the road, the road or further along the road to enabling lots more of these initiatives because there are plenty of examples. Uh, you talked in one of your talks about how it's when things come together that gives it a particular energy. We're talking yes. about double entry accounting and then there's yeah. printing and there's so on. What, what do you see on the horizon coming together that might really allow these sorts of things to, to grow even faster? Well, I, I think for the moment, the nation state is a bit in a crisis. And so mm-hmm. I don't have too much hope at that level. Uh, but I think the cities are a really great place to start. Mm-hmm. And so I have this idea of leagues of cities that mm-hmm. act as transnational forms of governance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so imagine the following. So you, you know as a city that you have to do these transitions. And, you know, cities are very close to the population because if something goes wrong, there's a riot. You know, they can't shuffle around mm-hmm. like an, a nation state can do. They they really have to solve their problems. Um, so we they know they have to do this transition. So imagine that you have transition councils, mobility, food, habitat, and that you want this kind of, uh, you know, more local, fair, sustainable solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you bring the stakeholders together, and then you basically start funding experimentations. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But the 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 underlying infrastructure should be global. Mm-hmm. So I think we should have a money ride coalition, which is the alternative to Uber. And, you know, let's say 40 cities are coalescing with ethical ethical finance, with impact, whatever, you know, that can fund all of these things. And they create a global open source depository. 
Mm-hmm. Every city can then use this this basis, adapt it to their local situation, improve it, um, and then local co-ops can start, you know, uh, setting up projects based on on this uh, shared technology. In this way, we we bypass the crisis of the nation state by creating global infrastructures. Um, mm-hmm. I think we can do this for mobility. I think we can do this for in lodging. I, I think we can do this for many, many, many. Do you think you can do it for food? In oh, a way? Well, it's food actually production? food is the easiest because, you know, when I was in uh, Ghent, 80 of the 500 examples were in food. That's what people actually are most concerned mm-hmm. about. It's very close. They're concerned about the health of their children. And I want to give yeah. you an example of how we could scale this up. So in Ghent, they have public schools, city, city-owned city public schools. They serve 5 billion meals a year. This is now purchased from a faraway multinational. And it's not really good food. It's full of preservatives and colorings and, you know, you know that kind of industrial processed food. So... The alternative would be to buy the organic food from the local farmers in the in Ghent and the bioregion, to have a zero carbon transport mechanism, shared cargo bikes, and to hire cooks in the schools again. So mm-hmm. with this, you create 100% healthy food, and you create jobs not for geeks, but for farmers, mm-hmm. for bikers, and for cooks. And this is, you know, my on my wish list is the possibility that I would actually set up such a project uh, mm-hmm. in a city like Brussels, or I'm I'm actually uh, spending two months in Brussels in October, November, and I'm I'm going to visit all the different uh, parties and say, you know, this is what you need to do, <laughs> and hopefully, uh, you know, I want to set up a project to to show that this can work, uh, that we actually can create meaningful. And, you know, engagement and activity locally uh, with a high multiplier effect, um, and give work to the people who tend now to vote, you know, for anti-democratic parties. Basically, is this in a way? I don't know if you've read any of the work of Gunter Pauli. Uh, uh, he was originally from Antwerp, but um, he talks about adding value with what we have and generating multiple cash flows and multiple benefits and building an economy from the base up. Yeah, yeah, I think this is very similar. You know, I'm, I'm not the only one. So we all try to do, you know, the same thing with different accents, yeah. but there is a lot of convergence going on. Uh, one, one thing I like, one approach that I want to talk about is mm. uh, the common good economy from Christian Felber, which is now a movement with 10,000 mm. members in a dozen European countries. And I, I just want to explain you the, the idea because I think it's also really interesting. So what he's saying is, if you look at all the constitutions of the democratic countries in Europe, they all say that the economy must serve the common good. It's in the constitutions. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's no word in the constitutions about profit maximization, right? <laughs> so yeah. basically, any legal obligation for companies to actually... You know, do profit maximization is not is not constitutional. I mean, that's his legal argument, right? So the next step would then be to um, to say that we will judge companies on the uh, their ability to do the common good, to serve the common good, and they have developed seventeen indicators 
that show this uh, to be the case. And there's a city in Flanders, and I don't know all the details, but I, I, I know this from our chairperson, which was called Evi Swinnen, and is involved in this project. Um, Rusalari is going to fund you know, a creative economy kind of uh, policy that's based on the advancement on this common good balance. You know, so imagine if we could do this, then then we, mm. we would have all these corporations, you know, they would still be there, but they would change their purpose. They would change their function, right? Yeah. Uh, this, of yeah. course, requires political power. So we have to start with seed forms, mm-hmm. but then eventually we need to generalize rules that allow us to create the institutions that we need, right? And an example is the energy vendor in Germany. You know, one village fought for five years to have the right to have an energy co-op. It wasn't easy. They won after five years of campaigning. Once they started, it spread, but it never spread more than two or three percent of the uh, energy yeah. supply. It's only because of Fukushima, the Greens were in the government, Mm. Merkel decided to move away from nuclear. They created the feed-in tariff. So they created a generative economic framework. And suddenly it's 60% of the uh, energy supply done by these energy co-ops. So that shows you the dialectic between seed forms, pioneering activists that show how it can be done, but don't necessarily have the power to generalize their model. And the right enabling conditions. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Need enabling conditions. Yes. And and my last major question to you about this is, in terms of adjusting, if you like, um, taxation and spending in a more fundamental level, I think what I pick up. Tell me if this is true, is that you are quite interested in shifting um, taxes away from people because you want people to. Uh, participate more in the economy and perhaps towards, I don't know, and non-renewable resources, or at least what you've mentioned is economic rents in some sense. Yes. That you want to be able to capture some of that unearned surplus and perhaps bring it back as unearned income, as a, a, if you... Yes, and, 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 right and, fi- and, fi- and financialize generative activities, right? So I'm not saying we should yeah. commodify nature. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that mm-hmm. people who can prove that they have beneficial ecological and social impact should yeah. be funded, and that through yeah. these tokens we now have actually a mechanism to do this. To do that, yes. right? So, in a way, you get around that you, you're talking about that positive externality thing. Yes, in other words, exactly. If you bring multiple yes. benefits, you do get rewards. Exactly, and then of course are... you can tax the bads, as they say, you know, incentivize yeah. the goods and tax the bads, right? And labor that's, is that's not a bad. Right. We have way way too much uh, income tax, and yeah. you know way too low environmental and speculative tax. Right. So this is where we need so, to work to make it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, pick, I'm picking up your point there that that you're talking both at the we need people to generate ideas to try things out, but it will always depend upon somehow that translating into. Uh, changing the rules of the game, as it were, or changing the framework for operation. Yes. In order to get yes. a successful change. Yes. The thing is, you know, I'm not saying this is possible tomorrow, but it's like a no. puzzle. A lot of people are working on pieces of the puzzles. Not enough people are looking at the whole picture. And this is the role of P2P mm-hmm. Foundation. That we look at the big picture, okay. we look at the gaps, 
you know, we look at what people we should be pushing to talk together, which patterns should be matched. Um, so this is what we do. And we now 12 people full time. We have a P2P lab uh, with nine people. So yeah, we've we've come a bit of a way since the beginning, you know. Yeah. So I suppose you'd agree with Einstein, who said it's the theory that determines what we observe. Of course. In other words, you have to have an idea before yes. you can really get on with the practical thing. Yes, people, you know, they don't see the commons because they they don't know what it is, um, mm. and so that's why I use examples because it's all around you, mm. and you just right. have to learn to see it, and then it has to affect your consciousness and thinking a new way about the world and, and finding your place in it. Thank you for listening to this Diff podcast. You can find more like this by visiting thinkdiff.co or on your regular podcast channels.